Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Matt Evitable, an adjunct instructor of history at SNHU, the publisher of the Mountain Eagle newspaper, and until the end of March 2020 anyway, the mayor of Middleburg, New York. In this episode, we discuss Matt's background, his research into European history after World War II, and British involvement with the Korean War, and the historical skills that he employs in his careers in journalism and in public office. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, I'm Matt Evitable. Um, I teach part-time at SNHU. I'm also an instructor at SUNY Oneana and SUNY Cobleskill, and I've also been fortunate enough to be mayor of my hometown in Middleburg, New York for the last eight years. And a couple of years ago, I bought our hometown newspaper, The Mountain Eagle, after I decided not to run for another term. So a little bit of everything. Wow. Okay. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Before we uh, get into that stuff, let's talk a little bit about your background. Where, what's your uh, academic and professional? Where'd you go to school? What projects have you been involved with? That kind of thing. A little bit of everything. Um, after I graduated high school, I went for two years to SUNY Cobleskill, where I got an associate's degree. Um, I've been teaching there on and off now for 10 years. I went to I went two years to SUNY Oneana. I got a bachelor's of science in history, uh, and I've been teaching there for the last 10 years. And after that, I went to SUNY Albany, where I received a master's in European history. When you say you got a Bachelor of Science in History, do you have a sense of what a Bachelor in Science is versus in History versus a Bachelor of Arts? Well, for starters, it's a real BS degree, but um, it winds up being um, my my course load apparently was more writing intensive than the Bachelor of Arts. Um, I got asked whether which one I wanted, and I figured Bachelor of Science sounded a little bit better. So um, because I took additional writing heavy classes in history, um, that's the degree that the college was nice enough to confer on me. Hmm, interesting. So they have a BA and a BS in history at the same time? Yep. So when you went to grad school, what was uh, what were your specialties there and what projects were you involved with? Uh, towards the end of my bachelor's degree and into my master's degree, um, I started writing a lot about the Cold War era. It was a, something I studied at both colleges. For undergrad, I, I wrote a seminar paper on um, the United States relations with Poland at the end of the Second World War and into the early Cold War. Talk about this idea of uh, the betrayal of the West that's a big topic in Eastern European history, talked about some of those issues, um, aid, uh, rejection of the Marshall Plan, American attempts under Truman and Roosevelt to uh, reach out to Poland, and of course, Stalin's uh, meddling in it. And then at Albany, uh, my seminar was on the British involvement in the Korean War. And my thesis was that there's a lot of points that you can really pinpoint where the British Empire uh, started to go into terminal decline. A lot of historians place that um, either at Versailles or 1945. And I figured just to be interesting or to, to push a, a new narrative, I selected the Korean War, talked about the election during that period, uh, Atlee's government going into the second Churchill government. And I really enjoyed researching it. So a lot of my specialty wound up being uh, around that period uh, Cold War at both uh, Oneana and at Albany. 
That's interesting. British decline uh, as exemplified in the Korean War. Because, yeah, you normally don't think about the British being involved in the Korean War. I know that it was a, a UN intervention, theoretically, or at least under the auspices of the UN. So how did it relate to uh, British decline? Was it that they just weren't able to mount a, a good war effort? Or how, how can you demonstrate the decline of the British Empire through the uh, Korean War? I titled it something to the effect of when the, the sun finally set on the British Empire, because when I researched it and you look at a lot of the post-war struggles, uh, Britain's economy definitely didn't bounce back in the same way that the American economy did. Um, Britain still was under rationing in the years after the Second World War, even as the United States entered into prosperity. And there were two successive elections in Britain. One was a bit inconclusive and the second one wound up with Churchill in power for the second time. And one of the great debates between Labour and the Conservative Party was whether or not Britain really had uh, presence on the world stage, whether or not Britain was playing second fiddle to the United States, not necessarily in a bad way, but that certainly Britain was no longer in a leadership position in the world as it was prior to 1939. And keep in mind, of course, uh, the war ends in 1953, and then 1956 came the Suez Crisis. And here is Britain and France trying to reassert this leadership role after Nasser nationalized the canal and Eisenhower so strongly against it. Not only does he make uh, the prime minister cry on the phone, literally, but Britain, Israel, and France are forced to withdraw from the canal and, and Nasser is able to keep it. So if Britain can't even assert itself over one of the most important projects it completes in the 19th century, I think it's it's emblematic in part, along with its its important yet secondary role to the United States during its time in Korea. That's interesting because I have read about the American humiliation of the British and the French in the context of the Suez Canal crisis. Uh, it's interesting to think about it. I hadn't really put it, thought about it in conjunction with the Korean War. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting connection because, yeah, it does de definitely demonstrate that the United Kingdom has lost its role. You know, the king of the mountain, they're not the king of the mountain anymore. And at the end of World War II, and then those those crises in the following decade. Yeah, I suppose that really demonstrates just how, I don't know, you don't want to phrase it too melodramatically, like how far they have fallen, but it does definitely show that they do not enjoy the kind of unilateral power that they had in previous decades and even centuries. Certainly. I really enjoyed writing about it because you have Britain starting its long decolonization efforts. I mean, right before the Korean War started, Britain ceded control back to uh, India and Pakistan, of course, and you have decolonization throughout the Middle East and then followed up in the Caribbean and Africa. And I think it's just part of a, a wider narrative. But if there was one point that could really tie together the efforts in the Second World War, and I think Churchill coming back on Britain's political stage really shows that it was my assertion and they accepted it <laughs> at the college. That it, was, it was between 1950 and 1953. Well, that's cool. So that's, that sounds like a really interesting project. Uh, so that was your MA thesis? Uh, actually, they didn't make us do a thesis. Uh, they had us do a, a seminar. And then at the end of um, the whole program, I had to defend it similar to a doctoral oh, okay. dissertation, but but a, a lot lower stakes, I guess you would say. Okay. And uh, since grad school, have you been involved with any other research projects of any size? Uh, it depends on, on your definition of research. I, I do research a lot of local history and political research for the newspaper. And, mm -hmm. and I've been boning up a lot on the history of my community. And, and I've been fortunate enough to serve as deputy historian 
uh, of Middleburg, which doesn't really have any title or pay attached to it, but it, it's a nice thing to be able to talk to people that know a lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. The village assisted. We in part funded the expansion of our local history room in, in the Middleburg library. And in working with the local historians at the, the town, village, and county level, a lot of my research has been on those topics. In fact, for the spring edition of one of our local Tri-County Historical Magazines. Uh, myself and my high school history teacher, Wes Laraway, is going, we're both going to write a topic on local history. And I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit later too. Yeah, I think that stuff is totally legit. Projects for uh, for research, that's, uh, I mean, there, there's a few reasons that I think that. One is that I often encourage students to go the local history route just because, you know, availability of sources is important because that's one of the things that students always struggle with is um, I need to do research in, you know, the British Museum, but how am I going to get to Britain to do that? Well, <laughs> maybe you should think a little bit more local in your topic. And so I'm always encouraging students to pursue local topics for availability of sources, but also just as a way to connect with the topic that you're researching, because if it's something local that you've grown up with or that you've been involved with, even if it's superficial as this event happened over at that street corner, but I've been to that street corner, I think that is valuable to students as they're writing their projects. It gives them a little bit of a connection to it. And it generally seems to result in more enthusiastic work. It's kind of, I don't know how to, how I'm really, I'd, you know, quantifying enthusiasm, but a lot of students seem to get a little bit more into it if it has to do with their own local topics and all of that. I agree completely. In fact, um, I've been able to use it in a couple of my different classes, fortunately. So I think it's valuable and it, it makes me feel as though, even though I haven't studied formally since 2010, um, a lot of my research, both for class and for my local career, revolves around the skills that I learned getting getting my different degrees. Yeah. And just as a kind of as a side note, I've also been kind of toying with the idea of pursuing some sort of a local history project. Also, I'm thinking of possibly doing it as like a podcast, um, just because we recently moved into a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. We've, we've lived in Columbus for 15 years, but we moved to one of the suburbs. And it's a suburb that has like a, a stronger sense of its own history than probably any other town I've ever lived in. And so I mean, the, the, the town was home to the Anti-Saloon League. It's Westerville, Ohio, which was always known as the dry capital of the world. It was the, the home of the Anti-Saloon League. And um, the, the Westerville, they just voted to allow alcoholic drinks in city limits, I think, back in 2004. So it has a very strong sense of its own history. And so I've really been kind of interested in trying to kind of document that. And I've been trying to figure out the best way to do that. I'm, like I said, I'm thinking of doing like a podcast type thing, but... Uh, Maybe I'll do some sort of other project with it also, but I like it. I, I think it'd be worth a project. Yeah, I, I, I think so. There were also all kinds of underground railroad stations in town here and stuff. So I, I, th I think there would be a lot to work with. And so I'm, I'm going to, I've been playing around with that for a while. It's just a matter of finding time for it. Like, you know, the bane of the historian's existence. Okay. So you, when you, so you graduated with your uh, master's degree and how did you get into, where did you go from there for it to get into a, a to pursue that degree as a career? I guess I wasn't sure, to be completely honest. And I think this is important for history majors to consider. I was torn between the idea of teaching at a high school level and what else I could use the degree for. And so my original thought was to go for a master's in education. And I, I dabbled in that a little bit. And I, I 
turned out to not really be up my alley. A lot of educational theory um, is very useful in the classroom, but ultimately has a very different focus from what I was really geared towards. And so the program at Albany turned out to be pretty much straight history. I think every single class was uh, history oriented. And I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do in the aftermath of my degree. I, I wanted to get into politics. I had already gone into politics partially um, by the end of my degree. So when it came down to time that I was graduating, I was in contact with one of my former professors, Fred Kowal, who uh, taught at both colleges, actually, both at Kovalskill and Oneana. But at the time, he was the chair of the department in Kovalskill. And he said, you know, let's give you a shot, see how you do. So I got signed up for a course over Kovalskill, and I've been fortunate to teach on and off there now for a decade. But Oneana uh, wasn't quite as clear. I had worked a summer job over at the campus that summer after I graduated, and I ran into my former advisor, Bill Ashbaugh, who was the uh, chair of the department, and he said, put in your resume, um, no guarantee that anything will come up, but just in case we need you, you know, we know you're good for it and you're familiar with the college. And I put it in and didn't really expect much from it. And the semester starts and the very first day of the semester, I got a call from the department asking if I was available. And by then, obviously, the first day, you know, I didn't, I hadn't anticipated teaching that semester. And it turns out that one of my colleagues had gotten a full-time position in another college and decided to drop his position as an adjunct at Oneana. But I guess he wasn't sure whether or not the full-time job was all there yet. So he didn't let the department know that he was quitting the college until after his classes had started. Um, he, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't actually show up to class that Monday. So Oniana called me and said, you know, we have two classes, you know, we know you're good for it. Are you interested? And I said, sure. So I had to put a bunch of stuff together, but I started the following week. And fortunately I've been there now. Uh, this is the middle of my 10th year. Boy, that is that is a rough entry into a new university, just trying to pick up coming on the second day or something and try to start from scratch. I enjoyed it. I, I liked the challenge. Um, I liked the fact that I was familiar with the campus. You know, I had been involved there um, at that point for four years, two years as a student, two years working part time in, in other roles. And it was good to work with a lot of the professors that I knew. You know, my former advisor became my boss. And I think a lot of students... I hope, I, I think that they appreciated um, the fact that I felt that I had to give extra effort to, to make up for the fact that um, the circumstances were strange why I was there. And, and here I was, I was 23. So it was, it was uh, another barrier to try and make sure that students who were not that much younger than me realized that not only was I serious, but um, I had been, I had just been through what they were going through and I was going to make sure that those courses worked the best that they could. Yeah, that is always a weird situation when you are teaching a class of students that are only a couple years younger than you. That's uh, it, it gets much. I don't want to say I don't know if it's easier or not, but, you know, as you get older and the students stay the same age, I mean, it create that creates kind of a surreal <laughs> dynamic on its own. But <laughs> when you're trying to teach people that are kind of the same age as you, that 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 is a difficult task. It is. And, and I learned that I don't wear a lot of ties, either as mayor or teaching now, but you know, when you're 23, 24, 25, you really have to make sure that you dress up, you look distinctive so that 
people mm-hmm. won't just think that you're you're just a super senior on campus. Right. It worked out. You're not just some fellow student that just took over the class somehow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it helped too because I could just say, look, gosh, I'm a you know I just graduated from your heck. Some of you were here when I was still a senior, and my brother at the time was he just entered into a senior year at Oneana. So being able to relay all of that information, um, I think really helped out. And a lot of the students uh, gave me feedback at the end of the semester. I, I sat them down at the end and it's a tradition I do most semesters and just say, look, how did I do? And, you know, they have their spy forms, the student perception of instruction forms where they separately fill out and say, you did this well, you didn't do this well. But, you know, being able to, to talk to students uh, one-on-one, remember their names and talk to them a little more viscerally. They gave me a lot of good feedback. And, and the first semester was kind of like a prototype. And, and the ones that I've done since, I think, have much improved in part due to um, their feedback that they were they felt comfortable letting me know what they, they really thought. And, and I made mistakes, but I definitely learned from it. And fingers crossed, I think everything's worked out since. So that, that talks a bit about your uh, academic background. Let's talk politics. So you mentioned that you are the mayor of Middleburg, New York. How did that happen? It's a bit of a long story, but we have plenty of time. So I guess I'll go. I've been fortunate enough now that I've been mayor for eight years. In fact, by the time this podcast airs, I'm going to be ending my term. My term ends March 31st. It'll be eight full years that uh, I've been fortunate enough to serve as the community's mayor. And five years prior to that, including my time getting a bachelor's and master's degree, I was fortunate enough to serve as village trustee. There's a board of five, there's a mayor and four trustees. It's kind of like a city council. And for five years, I got a lot of experience sitting on the board, understanding how the process worked and learning. But I I guess I can go back to the very, very beginning. And that was when I was 19. Um, I was a sophomore at SUNY Cobleskill. And it was January... I was going to the post office for something, and I ran into one of my predecessors, uh, former mayor back when I was in high school, actually. He was both my high school teacher and mayor, and he says, are you running for village trustee? And I had no idea. I didn't know too much about local government. I had a lot of interest in politics, but being 19, I guess there was a lot for me to learn, and I told him, I don't know. So I asked my dad, who had been reporting on Middleburg issues for the newspaper for, gosh, a long, long time by that point. And I asked about what the position was, what it might entail, what it might include. And so in New York, a lot of municipalities, small municipalities, have a different election uh, cycle that we have March municipal elections. People take office in April. They run for office from January to March. And so I... Found out a little bit about it and found out that there were two seats open for the village board. Um, Both were held by incumbents. And I figured it was worth a shot to go to the village office, talk to the clerk, pick up a petition. And to get on the ballot, you need 50 signatures. So in January, this is 2006, I went around and got, you know, 50, 70 signatures, whatever it was, and got a chance to talk to people and I uh, learned a lot because my family moved to this area when I was three or four. And so we don't have a big family here. We don't have a large number of people that are automatically going to vote for you. So every contact I had to make had to be 
fresh almost. And, you know, I hit up some people that I knew, but for the most part, especially when you're 19, turns out that you don't know as many people that as you kind of hope. And so <laughs> there's 550 right. houses in the village and I knocked on almost every single one of them and got my petition signatures and people said, you know, gosh, you know, you're a young kid. We'll give you a chance. And the other two members of the board who turned out to be really good people, we don't know them as well. Or, you know, oh, I know one person whose name actually is John Smith. It's not just a placeholder. Like we know John, he's a great guy. So we'll vote for you and we'll vote for John. And so the way the election works is everyone gets two votes. Top two vote getters get the two seats. Third person winds up losing. And so, you know, I go out in January, early February, get to talk to everyone and they say, all right, we'll vote for you. And I'm figuring, all right, local elections, turnout's really low. There's a thousand eligible voters. A lot of these local ones, you'll get a hundred or less. So I'm counting on, you know, you get 75 people out, a hundred people out, you win. And when I talk to people, I say, all right, elections, March, whatever, 15th. And I need to make sure that you come out and they'll say, okay, we'll be out. We'll vote for you. And, and the folks weren't lying to me, but gosh, I asked people how many people vote regularly in March elections. And I found out the answer the hard way. So I, uh, <laughs> I wound up campaigning a lot in January and February and got a lot of positive feedback and my opponents weren't really campaigning too much. So I figured, all right, this is pretty simple. And so I went to school at Coble Skill, and I stayed late. I was uh, head of the Model UN Club, uh, hung out, and we did a, a discussion. I get home at 8 o'clock, 7.50, and the polls close at 9, and I realize way too late that nobody's voted, that all those folks have forgotten that the day is today. And mm. so I was able to grab a few people to vote, but ultimately uh, I got to the polls and Nobody had voted. The, the voter turnout was about 100, like I figured. And I also thought that I had a bit of an advantage. John, who was a really good guy, um, had suffered from a stroke about two weeks before the election and at the time was was actually in a coma. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, John's a good guy, but gosh, he can't serve. And between the people that I talked to and the fact that probably the voters would not entertain having a person who can't serve get elected that I was going to win. And, and I was wrong on every uh, account. And I wound up getting 51 votes and I lost by 16. And so the fact that I lost and the fact that, especially the fact that there was an individual who couldn't serve that beat me in the election really taught me a lot about how to campaign, how to remind people to vote, how to organize and so I had lost the election and John couldn't serve. So the board uh, called for a second election the next year, like an off-term election. And fortunately, John has made a recovery and I'm glad and he's a, he's a good person. But here a seat was open and I had to make the decision on how to run a second time. I, I certainly wanted to have a shot at winning after I felt like uh, I had not given the effort that I wanted to. So I wound up with 51 votes the first time, figured that I would do my best. So I told my dad, who's been covering it, covering local stuff for well over a decade at that point. And I said, all right, I got 51 votes, like 95 people voted. I'm going to get 
a hundred votes just for myself. And he said, like, that's impossible. You know, you'd be lucky a hundred people vote. And so the mayor at the time and the village board at the time um, really backed another individual, another good guy. And I really had my work cut out for me to basically go up against the entire local political establishment. So I campaigned like crazy. And I had learned from my time that if I'm going to get elected, I need to remind people on the day of. So I grabbed my bike on a bad weather day in March and put in flyer on almost every single door in the village that day, worked from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. and said, you know, you got to come out election today. And more or less the first time, at least I had to do it all myself because I was still trying to prove myself to everyone. And at the end of the day, I forget the exact count, but it was like 105. I got 105 to 74 or something like that. And I really was able to, to push for it. And if I hadn't lost the first time, it wouldn't have worked out. I mean, over the next five years, I worked on trying to gradually get more and more reformers on the board. Um, I became friends with one of the individuals who beat me the first time, Jim Navilio, who was a very good guy, taught me a lot. I got to serve with another trustee who had served earlier and her husband had served on the board for about 30 or 40 years. So I learned a lot from her and get to know everyone. And uh, over the next five years, we gradually flipped every single seat on the board. Um, I got reelected for a full term in 2010 as trustee, and I got one of my friends to run with me, and we came onto the board. And then the big election that was coming up was 2012, um, the mayor seat and two other trustee spots. And I knew that it was going to be very, very difficult. And right before the election season started, our community was devastated by flooding in, in 2011 by Hurricane Irene, and everything kind of stopped. And for the first several weeks after the flood, I, I didn't really know what my role was, but I knew I had to do something. So the morning after the flood, I went to the village office and I put on a pot of coffee and I put a sign on there, unlocked the doors and just said, come on in, you know, come and get some coffee. I didn't know what the solution was and people gradually started coming in paying you know their water bills were due they didn't know what to do so they came in and paid it and some people said i need help at my house for this we need to you know get stuff out of my house i need mud out of my my first floor um or people would stop and say what do we do and so here's the office that was a former bank and we were fortunate enough it was built up about three feet and the mud had come right up to the top step, but didn't go in. So all the buildings around it had been hit hard. But the fact that we had those three feet meant that that building could be the um, center of the recovery. So over time, a lot of responsibility came down to myself and my uh, family who helped me out. And a lot of people that I knew and then got to know because uh, the clerk who was had excellent attendance who served the village for 41 years finally got convinced to take a vacation right before the flood and so she was in connecticut and couldn't come back our deputy clerk who's now clerk her mother's house was destroyed by the flood and so she was helping uh her mother and the mayor at the time was i think just not ready to take on such a task and so here i was and my friends on the board uh were, were out there helping and 
gradually we set up a full volunteer response. We organized and cataloged 100 volunteers, sent them to people in need, um, cataloged them by their time, by their skill. We got a lot of food that we distributed. In fact, um, our accountant at the time, who unfortunately had to move because his business and house was destroyed by the flood, had a freezer full of food that they didn't know what to do with. And so we commandeered two gas grills and we had two cookouts and we fed a hundred people a hot meal that, that, you know, that they couldn't get otherwise. And I think one of the defining moments was I was in the office the first week after the flood, I forget which day. And I get a phone call at the, the office phone and I pick up and I say, and I hear is, you know, can I speak to the mayor? Is the mayor there? And I said, I'm sorry, the mayor's not here, but I'm the next best, you know, I'm the next best person to talk to, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, who may I ask is calling. And the voice says, well, this is Andrew Cuomo. And uh, I wanted to let you know that this and that and this and that he, he had come he was coming into town for a visit. And and I really need such and such, I I think just for people to, uh, for a contact there. And uh, Senator Gillibrand came by. And so for the, First several weeks, uh, I had to miss work at college. The roads were closed for part of the first week, and and I played a major role alongside dozens and dozens and dozens of other people to do our best for flood recovery. And so a couple of months later, I decided to run for mayor, and a lot of stuff happened in between, but I know we're short. You know, we only have so much time, but I decided to run in January, and uh, the mayor at the time decided he wanted to run too, and it was an extraordinarily hard campaign. I was 25, 24 at the flood, 25 in the campaign. And the uh, my opponent had served two terms and he was 61. And I had to le- take everything that I learned during the flood and during campaigning and knocking on doors. And this time I had a lot of friends to help me and it was close and it was difficult, but I won. And uh, two of my other friends joined the board and then a fifth member of the board uh, joined shortly thereafter. So um, in the space of those five years, um, we were able to do quite a bit. And fortunately, the voters kept me and I've uh, decided not to run for another term. And I'm going to be handing over things on March 30, March 31st. Hmm. So I've got two kind of general thoughts here is that one is that that demonstrates the importance of local government is that you are you're the first on the ground whenever there's a disaster like that. And so local government is the ones that really kind of set the stage. I mean, who knows, maybe later FEMA or someone will come in if it's a, if it's a large enough disaster, but you in the local government are the ones that are kind of immediately responsible for solving these problems. And so local government is, you know, it's just always nice to kind of remember that local government is hugely important. Yes. And one of the major tasks that I had during the campaign and, and in my early days was to remind people that if you want things to change, if you want to recover, I mean, almost our entire business district was either destroyed or heavily damaged. Um, some of the nicest homes in the community along the creek were seriously damaged or destroyed. And we lost our uh, grocery store. Our pharmacy had closed right before the flood. And almost every business was uh, was devastated. And so here, I, you know, the board was facing half of our main street empty and damaged, empty or damaged, no grocery store, um, 
and an exodus of people leaving or considering leaving. So just, I guess, a thumbnail sketch, we had to figure out a whole bunch of stuff. But So we raised $30,000 for flood relief. We gave them to people with first floor damage, including businesses. Um, we worked with uh, governments at all levels to, to implement grant programs to help both the folks that were devastated and to fill in those vacant storefronts. And I made flood recovery my my number one goal. And I made a few very simple promises when I ran. I didn't promise anything extraordinary. And I basically said, we're going to put together a new business association, which we hadn't had for eight years. We're going to do more local events and, and I'm going to get us a grocery store and a pharmacy. And, and thank goodness we've been able to do that in Main Street. Uh, with one exception, a business just moved. So we got one spot we got to fill in. But we went from half empty to now with that one exception, completely full. And one of the side streets is almost completely full now, which had been um, not prior. And so now that I, I feel like every single thing that I promised is come to pass in large part due to the efforts of all the members of the board and a whole bunch of volunteers and past members of volunteer groups in the board that um, it's time to make sure the new generation can come in and hopefully do well. Yeah. That's good to hear that the, uh, that the town is rebuilding. My hometown is, was uh, paradise, California, where you you may have heard uh, last about a, just over a year ago, we're recording this in November. So it was in November of 2018, the entire town burned to the ground as part of a wildfire yes. that swept through Northern California. And so it's, I don't, you know, I don't want to compare damage or anything, but it's just, it's good to hear that, that your town was able to rebuild after that disaster. Cause it's really kind of up in the air about whether paradise is going to rebuild or not. It'll, it'll re something will rebuild there. There will still be a community there, but the expectations are that it's going to be maybe a 10th the size that it was before the fire. And so it's, it'll be curious to see how that plays out. They are. They were dealing with you know same similar disaster relief problems. Uh, the entire county was dealing with it because suddenly there was a population of the town of twenty five thousand people suddenly displaced and thrown into the neighboring communities. So it created all kinds of turmoil across the entire county and much of Northern California also. But uh, yeah, it remains to be seen what paradise is going to look like going forward because of just the extent of the disaster and the the, the number of people that left and probably will never return. It's a terrible thing, and it's a terrible thing to be confronted with that idea of whether or not whether or not there's going to be a community in the same way that you anticipated, you know, growing up and watching things change dramatically. And I and I vowed, and I said when I campaigned, um, you know, my sister was what thirteen at the time, and I said she's graduating in in four years, and I don't want people to leave. When I graduated, a lot of my classmates said, there's no reason for me to stay. And I want, I wanted people by the time she graduated. And I think we did all right with it to say, there's no reason for me to go. And I, I feel very fortunate and I'm really glad that I can go voluntarily. I see a lot of local politicians that they, they start for good reasons and they stick around forever because they feel like it's their, you know, it's their role to kind of know better than everyone else. And generally what you find is that you don't, that you need the support of your fire department, your rotary club, your uh, other local organizations. Once you're able to set out what you accomplish, then it's, it's a good time to let someone else with fresh ideas take it on. And I tell people, you know, I'm 32, I'm turning 33 by the time this broadcast that, 
gosh, if you need me in 20 years, call me up. But, you know, as of right now, I'll leave it to another member of the board. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll rejoin the board briefly if you need me. But apart from that, I want to give someone else a shot to be able to do it. Plus, being mayor uh, now is not uh, as much of a time sink as it was. But when I started, it was we lowered my salary to help pay for the deficit we had from the flood. We had basically spent almost all of our reserves due to it. And so here I was doing, you know, 35 hours of work a week for $3,400 a year. And I want to make sure that now that things have gotten a lot better and uh, I feel a lot more comfortable that it's time. Yeah. And that um, actually brings me to another question I've always kind of had about local politics is it must be difficult to run a campaign against people in a small town like that because you know these people like you like you were just saying the people you're running against were good guys and so it's it feels like it'd be hard to run in a situation like that when you're you're going up against you know somebody that you know and you know that everybody else knows and has has been a a good guy and a good friend or whatever it must be difficult i mean on, on the national stage it's probably easier to kind of dehumanize your opponents because, you know, that person comes from another state or something. And so I can belittle that person or that person has horrible ideas. And I, I don't feel self-conscious pointing out bad ideas from another person. But I imagine at the local level, that must be more difficult to it's, do. It's a good thing, I think. Um, fortunately, all village elections are nonpartisan. So you really have to run for yourself. And since it's a March election, nobody remembers to vote unless they're coming out specifically for or against a person. And I was fortunate enough that uh, my friends who ran and then even the folks who beat me, I haven't been able to befriend John, but I know he was a good guy. And Jim, who I served on the board with, um, really taught me a lot. And he's been, he went on and he moved. Uh, he became a member of another village board and then he recently moved back and I'm encouraging him to run. And so, you know, I got asked that question a lot because when you run, you know, people want to know, well, if your opponents hasn't been to your house yet, well, you know, tell me a little bit about them and for the most part, the answer that I gave was, you know, I hope that they come here real soon and it's their responsibility to let you know. And and it was a little bit different, you know, when I ran for trustee that first and second time, you know, running against good people and people I know have the community's best interest at heart. It's a, it's not easy and, and it's a good rule of thumb just not to put anyone down. But when I ran in the big marquee race where I, I actually became mayor it was a lot more difficult because uh, the mayor who had come before me decided that it was uh, not his responsibility to take on a lot of the flood issues. And so it was a lot more personal at that point because there was someone who wouldn't leave the stage well after his time was over. And I knew that it was absolutely necessary to win the trustee ones I really wanted, obviously. But if I had lost, the community would go on without me. But I, I felt in 2012 that it was essential for the future of the community that that our team won and and so fortunately with a lot of effort it was it was close and it was hard to run as a kid i i can tell you my age counted against me but we made it work has your background as a historian do you think it has helped you in this political type career uh has it, and in, in, if it has, what ways do you think it has? I think helped? it's helped me quite a lot, actually, because I tend to think of things as a historical narrative. And so, um, even before I got elected and, and after, I've been learning a lot about local history. And as a result, I wind up knowing a lot. I, I wouldn't say that I, I know as much as I should by far about local history, but um, I certainly know um, a lot more than when I started. And so, 
there's a lot of questions on the history of the villages or the history of the village, history of mayors, history of the county. And I've learned a lot. And one of the fortunate things is that um, our building used to be both the town and village hall. And so we have a large archive of village and town records going back to the 1880s. Our village was incorporated in 1881. So we have the original uh, minutes of the village board and of the fire department and uh, a lot from the town. And so I'm able to research. And so one topic that came up a couple of weeks ago was the fire department is getting a grant for a new ladder truck. And they asked for some help finding the original articles of incorporation for the village fire department, which we, which we own, we're the parent of. And I couldn't find it, but I went through a whole bunch of records that I thought might have it. And I found the original, some of the original bylaws of the village. And I looked at a series passed, I think in 1921. And I put it on Facebook in the, in the community page saying, you know, here's some, some older laws we're going to have to enforce. And one was uh, no skinny dipping, dollar fine. And the other is if you race a mule at a speed more than five miles an hour in the village, you get a, a dollar fine. So it was really entertaining to be able to put that in perspective along with where the village is today, kind of understand, because let's face it, every, uh, a large majority of people who vote are older people. And they want someone who respects local history as well as uh, looks towards the future. And I feel like um, our team, my friends and I, um, have been able to do that. And and I think that's part of the reason why uh, Middleburg still looks like a Norman Rockwell painting, even as it's changed a lot over the years. And that makes a lot of sense uh, that, you know, you've got the research skills. So, yeah, go do some research. <laughs> that sounds really cool. And so you mentioned that you are also the owner of the, is it the town newspaper? Pretty much. It's like, a, I wouldn't say regional. I think that would be giving it too much importance, but I guess you could say our local paper. Um, 1990, my dad moved us up so he could work at the Mountain Eagle, which at the time was a really big newspaper, um, covered five counties and was really doing quite well. And the short version is the owner, the founder, founded it in 1982 um, died, uh, suddenly and the paper basically fell apart. And so it got passed on to a corporation who then sold it to another corporation owned by a large parent corporation who ran 50 newspapers across the state. And it kind of got automized and it went from covering five counties down to like six towns. And so I had realized that I wasn't running again. And I promised everyone the second time around that I wasn't. And to make a really long story short, the paper came up for sale and it was on the verge of going out of business and the owners were interested in selling. So uh, I went to them and I chatted with them and it took a couple of months to make it work. And I, I wound up actually printing a, a forerunner newspaper for a couple of months. I took an online paper to print and then for about three months and then combined it with the Mountain Eagle in January 17. And my goal was, you know, I, I felt I learned a lot from being mayor and we took something that was in a difficult position and made it really work well. And my goal was to take the Mount Eagle and take it back to about what it was when my dad moved us up originally in the nineties um, to work for. And he had left since. Um, but here I was in my formative years thinking of him working for the paper. My mother had actually worked as an ad person for them briefly. So I thought it was a really neat thing. You know, local, a lot of the local papers were on the decline. They, they you know, they hadn't, didn't have the same coverage that they used to. And for the last three years now, I've been 
publishing the paper um, basically on a charity basis. I, I'm the chief cook and bottle washer at the paper. I have my own delivery route and um, and I don't draw a salary. Well, maybe I will by the time this airs, but as of November, it's a, it's a labor of love uh, to be able to do so. And so I was able to take together a lot of the all-stars, as I call them, the people who used to work for the paper before the terminal declined, before I bought it, when they went down to just one employee. And I took Liz, who's down in the Stanford office, who was the only employee when I bought it, my friend Tim, who had that online paper, my dad, who worked at the paper 30 years ago, Mike Ryan, who used to work at the paper 30 years ago, John Ment, who worked at the paper 20 years ago, Carolyn Bennett, who was the editor 20-something years ago. And I put them all together and I said, you know a lot more than I do. And so I'm willing to give you all the effort and and help that I can to keep it solvent until we can grow it. And so we took this paper that was covering about six towns with 450 readers. And in the last three years, we've transformed it into one that's now back in uh, three counties, big coverage in three county, partial coverage in one county. And we cover 31 towns, something like that. Now we're the official paper of two counties, and I'm working on a third right now. And I publish our legal notices for the village for free because it's a conflict of interest if I charge. So we've been able to save the community $3,000 a year uh, doing that. It's a way to give back. And so it's a, it's a difficult thing, uh, but we covered a number of stories. I guess the the top three really quickly would be a fake flood charity. This is an especially sore topic to me because of what happened during the flood. They had, they had misappropriated, I guess stolen would be the wrong word since they did it legally, but they had misappropriated a half million dollars and I discovered it and I did a lot of interviews and research and Ran an addition. We mailed to every single person in the county two years ago and shut down their operation. They actually ceased paying salaries after that, which was my main goal. Um, we covered a developer who was trying to steal $12 million in grant funds by faking opening a senior housing project that he kept delaying. And so he lost that property and actually reported several weeks ago that now there's an arrest warrant for him and the paper was able to get that facility open. And third was the most difficult one for us to do was, of course, being the hometown paper of the limo crash in Skihari in October 2018. And so that was a very difficult paper to put together, but I think our best one uh, covering it from a local perspective. And so between all of that, I have a a great team. Um, I do some writing myself. I do administrative stuff myself, but I feel like understanding that topic um, of local government and and history has made a difference. And in fact, if you open the paper up um, at any given time, we have multiple local history pieces, um, which I really appreciate. You've got quite a lot on your plate. (laughs) Yeah, it keeps me uh, running around a lot, but I feel nothing worth uh, having is easy. Do you have any just general advice or suggestions for students with history degrees, either graduate degrees or undergraduate degrees that are looking to enter the workforce? There's actually a few that I have. My brother actually graduated with a bachelor's in history as well. And I get asked this question a fair amount. I think for students, it's important to understand that the process in which someone gets a a bachelor's or master's degree in a field often prepares them for a number of different possibilities. Of course, some of that is going to be academic, um, that it it allows people to either stay in the history field and keep moving up or 
go into another one. It, it certainly helps with research skills, but often that extra dedication, getting a degree, studying in the field, not only allows someone to teach, which is a, a common outcome, but also to know more for other related fields. I mean, I can tell you that history and local politics often go hand in hand. Um, I know that SUNY Oneana, where I got my bachelor's degree in teach, has a very excellent museum studies program in cooperation with um, some museums out in Cooperstown. And of course, Cooperstown, which is 35 minutes from Oneana and, and from my house, has uh, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the State Farmers Museum, the Fenimore Art Museum. There's a lot of possibilities open for history majors that are willing to use that experience, not only within the field, but consider a number of any related fields as well. Great. And thank you for that. Do you have anything that you'd like to recommend for us today? Oh, as far as recommendations for uh, books and research. Well, I know in my U.S. Government 2 class, we just finished up a variety of topics in the Second World War and the Cold War recently. And so we had a discussion on um, appeasement leading up to the Second World War and, and what students would do that might be different. So a couple of students came to me for their term papers and asked me for uh, recommendations for reading. And I can tell you from my time in undergrad, I was only able to read a large portion of one of the three. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here. But Richard Evans has a really good trilogy on the Third Reich coming to power, the Third Reich in power, and um, the Third Reich at War. And I have two of the three. I was able to read a lot of the first one for graduate studies. And um, tying that together with a book that I read in high school, uh, the famous really thick William Shire's uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, when students asked about research um, between the Shire book, which has lost some credibility lately because people tend to look down on it because of future research and the fact that he's a journalist, but a book that I really like combined with uh, Evans' uh, work, I was able to recommend it for a lot of heavy research for the term paper uh, for the students. And I was very happy to hopefully steer them in the right direction to use along with the other sources for their paper. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I haven't read the Evans ones, but I did read the Shirer book years ago, but I remember it being a really compelling read because he was there. It was. It, it really was. I think it, I think it shows because he was a journalist. He knew how to hook the reader. And, and I, I read every once in a while, I read about the historiography of the book. And there's some elements, obviously, he couldn't have known in the 30s and 40s. But as far as I'm concerned, especially reading, you know, gosh, a whole lot more when I was a younger person, I think it still stands up really well. Yeah, I think so, too. It's a it's, it's a good read. So yeah, I, I'll, uh, you know, I'll second that. <laughs> and the Evans ones, I'm sure are good, too. I just haven't read those ones yet. I'm going to discuss a book also. Um, it is Daniel Immerwar's How to Hide an Empire. Um, it was okay. just published this year. The premise of the book is that t in, in American history, in our survey courses, and even in a lot of our specialty courses, when we talk about the American empire as it developed in the 19th century, uh, which culminated with you know the Spanish-American War and grabbing onto the Philippines and Puerto Rico... A lot of that stuff tends to get covered in like one chapter of, of survey textbooks. We talk about how the American empire grew uh, um, all the way through, and you know, Alaska, Hawaii, all those places. And then the discussion of the empire tends to kind of disappear. Like the, the, the U.S. controlled the Philippines and owned the Philippines outright for about 50 years. But we only ever talk about it in that initial 
expansion period of the in the wake of the Spanish-American War. And so what the premise of this book is, is that he wants to talk about American history that includes all of that stuff, the stuff that's going on in those empires, because what he did is he looked at the 1940 census records on the eve of World War II and realized that, you know, if you take the population of all of those territories into account, uh, we're talking like 12% of the population of the of the United States, 12% of them are, are Americans, all of the people who live in Puerto Rico, the Philippines, they're all Americans, because those are American territories. And so that accounts for something like 12% of the American population. And when it comes to territory, like land, square square mileage of land, that's almost 20% of the United States exists outside of the continental, you know, the mainland United States. And so he's, he's talking about how in 1940, the United States was actually, you know, if you count the territories, the, the United States, of course, was flung all, all across the world. But if you ask most people on in the United States to talk about who are Americans, they always look at just what he calls the logo map of the U.S., which is just the mainland. They never even think about the fact that, you know, the Philippines are part of the U.S. and Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so um, he's talking about how that came to be where, you know, 20% of the landmass of the United States is basically being ignored up until the 1940s. And then in the 1950s, places like Philippines got their independence. And we still have control over some places like Puerto Rico and Guam and, uh, you know, the Virgin Islands. But uh, the goal of the book is to basically start telling the history of the United States in this period, but to include all of the stuff that's happening in those territorial regions too. So he's talking about things like you know, the the Philippine War against the United States, where they were trying to kick the U.S. out in the wake of the Spanish-American War. And he's talking about the development of the Guano Islands of the Caribbean, <laughs> where the U.S. owned like a hundred islands out in the Caribbean that were completely uninhabited. But the reason we wanted them is because they had thousands of tons of uh, bird guano on it that was really good fertilizer. And so he's just trying to give the story of what's happening. In the United States, because all these territories are the United States that are getting ignored by survey textbooks and all that. And it presents a really, really interesting story because it, uh, you know, that jives with my understanding of American history and my teaching of American history. And the way I learned it was that, well, you talk about the expansion of the American great empire in the 1890s, and then it all just kind of disappears. And then you move on to the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, and you talk about stuff that's happening in the mainland, but very rarely will you go back and talk about what's happening outside the the continent of the United States, the, the, the continent of North America. And so it's a, it's a really interesting book. It's really well written too, and it moves, moves along pretty quickly, but it, it helps to kind of put things into context because there's always references to what's happening in, you know, what you might call the mainstream American history texts and all of that. But it's focusing on the stuff that's happening in what he's calling the greater United States. And so it's a really interesting um, book. So, you know, I recommend it. It's the one of those things where historians know you know, in theory, intellectually, we know that the Philippines was part of the U.S. for 50 years, but the vast majority of historians would never be able to tell you what was actually happening in the Philippines during that 50 year period. So it's just a, it's an interesting kind of corrective to uh, some really large blind spots in the general kind of understanding of American history. So I recommend it. That sounds great. So uh, thank you for uh, joining me today, Matt. Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Matt Avidabel, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good day.